Our Father, we thank You for this Word that we have before us. We thank You that it is a faithful Word, it is a true Word, it is a dependable Word, it is a sufficient Word. It is always everything that we need. Perhaps, Father, particularly right now, we have an even greater sense of our dependence on this Word, our reliance upon this Word, the necessity of this Word. And so would you take this Scripture that I that is probably familiar to many of us. And would you drive it into our hearts? And Father, would you keep the familiarity of the words from becoming trite to us? But might the familiarity of the words transfix us on you and transform us and give us hope and bolster us for the week ahead? We entrust our worship to you, our Father. We entrust this word to you. Would you guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Loneliness is a common affliction. We we live in a world where people are increasingly lonely, even while they are increasingly better connected within that world. A secular writer noted a number of years ago, if you are an average American, you're not nearly as connected to the people around you as your parents or grandparents were. You don't vote as regularly. You don't join clubs as much. You don't entertain at home as often. Chances are you spend more time each week watching friends than making friends. And it is true that this sense of disconnection is likely even greater today than it has ever been because of coronavirus. We not only feel alone, we are alone. And the government wants us to stay that way for our protection for a significant amount of time. We, we were, as human beings, created for fellowship. We were created for a relationship. And then, as those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we were recreated into even greater fellowship and more intimacy and more sweetness with God in heaven and with one another in the body of Christ. And, and this social distancing requirement is attacking the heart of what we are as people and even more... As, as what we are as believers in Jesus Christ. Now we feel alone and we are alone. And that likely has made many question whether they are not only alone in their houses, but whether they are also alone in the universe. They, they feel not only separated from people, but perhaps many are thinking they are also separated from God. Has, has He abandoned us? Has He left us to our own devices? To answer that question, I want to turn this morning to this psalm that I trust is very familiar to you, Psalm 139. One commentator has called this psalm one of the most beautiful and profound hymns in the psalms. And and at the same time, he says it is also one of the most intimate of psalms. He says this psalm uses a profound theology of God to form a powerful message for those who trust in the sovereign Lord God. It is applied theology, he says, so it is always relevant. It is, it is the greatness of God 
And it is the intimacy and the fellowship and the closeness of God. Here in this psalm, we are plumbing the depths of God's character and we are finding that that character is also an immense provision for us. It is His personal care to us. He is grand and He is transcendent and He is beyond our comprehension, but He is also a loving and personal and intimate and close God. He is well acquainted with us and He is caring for us and our burdens and our needs. The truth of God is all-knowing and ever-present and all-powerful should be a rich encouragement to us. Sometimes it seems, even as it it might have seemed to David halfway through this psalm, it might seem that these truths put a damper on our desires for God. It makes us to want to flee from Him. But friends, His omni-attributes are only a hindrance to us because we have failed to understand their significance and their purpose. So as we look at this psalm, follow along with me as I tease out and explain the theme of this psalm. Let the character of God stimulate your loyalty to God and your trust of God. The the great attributes of God, the, the vast nature of God's character should stimulate us to loyalty to Him and to trust of Him. We should be more loyal because of what we hear this morning. We should be more trusting and less anxious because of what we hear this morning. As we look at the psalm, we will, we will see that the psalmist David reveals three aspects of God's character and provides one set of responses to that character. Three aspects of God's character that we will see in this psalm and then one set of responses to that character. What is the first thing that the psalmist reveals? In verses 1 to 6, he reveals to us three truths of God's omniscience, three truths of God's omniscience. And the first is given to us in verses 1 to 3. It is that God's knowledge includes everything we do. God's knowledge includes everything we do. Now notice verse 1, he says, O Lord... You have searched me and known me. Verse verse 1 serves as something of, of a summary statement for the five verses that follow. In fact, in each of the three sections, the first verse always serves as kind of an, a summary and overarching uh, principle for the verses that follow. And that's what's going on here. But notice not only is he providing a summary statement of God's omniscience, but notice how he addresses addresses him He addresses him, O Lord. He addresses him by his name, Yahweh. This is is the most significant name of God in the nation of Israel. This This is the name of God that they were fearful of pronouncing. And so instead of pronouncing the name Yahweh, they would pronounce the name Lord and say the name Lord instead for fear of taking his name in vain. This is, this is the name by which God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. This is, this is God's transcendent and great name. This is, this is the highest name of God. And yet at the same time, it's not only a transcendent name of God, it's also the covenant name of God. So it is, it is the name of God by which He makes the covenant with the nation of Israel to say that the nation of Israel belongs to Him and He belongs to the nation of Israel. 
So it is, it is a large name, and yet it is also a close name. It is an intimate name. It is a name that, that speaks of his fellowship with us. It means when David says this, O oh Lord, it is a reminder that God is the covenant God. He is close to Israel. He is intimately acquainted with everything that Israel is, and not just Israel, but also David. And friends, also it means that he is intimately acquainted with us. He's already, already giving us a hint of that. Now, what does, what does David say God knows about him? Notice he says that he has searched us. He has, he has searched us out. That doesn't mean that, that he went looking and saying, well, there's something about David that I don't know. I need to go find out what that is. No, when it says that he searches us, it means that he is exploring. He is spying out. He is digging deeply into it. It's a word that is used to, to speak about exploring a country and knowing every detail about a country or a countryside. It is a word that indicates not only that he knows us, but that he is examining us. He is examining not only what we are doing, but he is even moving into the depths of our hearts. We might say it this way, he knows us inside out. He knows everything about us. He searched us. And David also says, you have, verse 1, known me. Because God has examined David, God knows him personally and completely. He knows everything there is to know about David. God knows every activity of every man. Nothing escapes his notice. And this is where David goes in verses 2 and 3. Notice what he says in verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. That is... God knows every movement of David. If, if David twitches a muscle, God knows of that movement. If, if David begins to go anywhere, God knows of that movement. God, God knows when he moves. God knows when he sits. God notices everything. Nothing escapes God's notice. Not only does he notice his movements, but he says, you understand my thought from afar. Not only does God notice what David does, but he also notices what David thinks. And, and distance does not preclude God from knowing that. So while God is in the heavens and is, is far in distance from David. David says, even that distance, the fact that you are far away from me, does not preclude you from knowing what is in me and what my thoughts are. But it's not just that, that God knows what our thoughts are. David says, you understand my thoughts. That word understand has the idea of discerning and evaluating. God is... God is testing the thoughts. God is evaluating the thoughts. He is, he is discerning whether or not the thoughts are motivated rightly, if the desires are right and godly, if, if the thoughts are moving David towards him or away from him. Are the thoughts consistent with God? This is, this is exactly similar to what, that, what Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in verses 4 and 5, the apostle says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. 
Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. In other words, the Lord is the one who tests and evaluates everything that the Apostle Paul is. But then notice what else he says in verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness that is, the things that have been hidden, the deeds that have been hidden, and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So so God will evaluate what is done, God will evaluate the motives of what is done, and then he will apportion out praise and reward based on whether or not one has complied with God's standards in what he has done and in what has motivated what he has done. That's the very same thing as what the, uh, what the psalmist David is saying. God not only cares, brothers and sisters, about what we do, he also cares and is intimately interested in why we do what we do. God also examines the journeys of David. Notice verse 3. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. His path, that's, that's where he walks. That's where he goes. Those are the things he does in his daily routine every day. Wherever I go, you know. And wherever, wherever he sleeps, wherever he lies down, wherever he rests his head at night, God knows that. But notice... He not only knows it, but again, verse 3, he says, you scrutinize my path. And that word scrutinize is, is a word um, that is used in other contexts for sifting. So like, so like grains are sifted to remove the chaff from the grain, in a similar way, God is sifting the, the actions and the deeds and the thoughts of David and determining which is, which is righteous and when is, which is unrighteous. Friends, we need to remember that that David's entire routine is being observed and tested. But that's not just true of David, is it? If it's true of David, it's also true of us. God is doing the very same thing of us. We, We might say it this way. No action of any man is unobserved by God. And no action of any man is unevaluated by God. God sees it all and God evaluates it all. The psalmist David then gives another example of God's omniscience. We see this in verse 4. God's knowledge includes everything we say. He not only knows every word we speak, but notice that he says he also knows every future word and he even knows every potential word. So God not only... God not only knows what happens, He knows all the potentiality of everything that might happen or might be said. Notice verse 4. Even before there is a word on my tongue, before I even utter the words, behold, O Lord, You know it all. You know when a word is on the tip of your tongue and you're just about to say it? And sometimes... Sometimes you have pause in your conversation and you're thinking, should I say this or should I say this? And the person that is listening to you doesn't know which direction you're going to go. And David says, God knows. God knows every potential word before you say it. He is not dependent on hearing you say the words 
to know what is in your mind and your heart and your intention. And our brothers and sisters, David's point here is that if God knows even our potential words, it means that He knows everything. There's nothing that escapes Him. There's nothing that He doesn't know. That leads us to the third truth about God's omniscience. And it is that God's knowledge is overwhelming. God's knowledge is overwhelming. Notice what he says in verse 5. You have enclosed me behind and before. He's enclosed. And in fact, the parallel statement at the end of that verse reinforces this. He said, you have laid your hand on me. And and that idea of laying your hand on is, is kind of like laying your hand on top of it this way, even as I put my hand over over the PowerPoint clicker and, and enclose it and encircle it with my hands. David is saying God does that very same thing with his life. He's, he's surrounded. He's enclosed. God knows everything. And, and the sense is that David might be feeling just a little bit claustrophobic by that, that God is, has in a sense closed in on him. God has hemmed him in. God has even trapped him. So what are, what are we saying about what David has said about God's omniscience? One thing we note in these verses is that God knows every detail of David's life. He knows the past, he knows the present, and he knows the potential. Nothing escapes his eyes. He sees it all. He knows it all. And brothers and sisters, we also should note that God knows every individual in that very same way. Listen listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. This is so helpful. God sees you as much as if there were nobody else in the world for him to look at. The infinite mind of God is able to grasp a million objects at once and yet focus as much on one as if there were nothing else but that one. And brothers and sisters, that's the way our God in heaven looks at you. He gives you full attention as if you were the only one to whom he has to give attention. And so David says of that omniscience of God, notice verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is extraordinary. It is surpassing. It is incomprehensible. David is, David is astounded and amazed as he thinks about the nature of God and the character of God. And as, as David says these things, it is too wonderful. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Commentators are kind of divided on what he means by that. Some have suggested that that, that David is particularly intimidated by this, and they get this particularly from verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? In other words, you've hemmed me in, you've closed me in, and I want to escape and I want to get away. And it, as, if, as if this is not a comfort to David. But by the end of the psalm, and we're going to see this in verse 23 and verse 24, David says, not only you do know me, but he also says, would you examine me and would you test me and would you look at me even more closely and reveal me, reveal who I am to me? And so he's embracing the omniscience of God. I think from that we can, we can understand that the omniscience of God, as well as all of the other characteristics of God, can be both a comfort and a terror depending on where we are in our fellowship with Him. If, if we are in fellowship with Him and if we delight in Him and if He is our Savior and if, if we are content with Him, 
then these truths that He knows everything is a tremendous comfort. But if we are out of fellowship with Him, if we are disobedient to Him, if we are rebellious to Him, and we know that He knows everything there is about us, then that's a terrorizing fact against us, isn't it? And so so we should, as believers, take comfort from the fact that God knows everything that there is to know about us. How should we, how should we take these truths in verses 1 to 6 and God's omniscience and think about them in relation to COVID-19? We, we should think in, in a number of ways. We should think that there is no government official and there is no medical worker that is acting without the knowledge of God. In other words, in, 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 in similar vein as to the way God knows about David, he knows every government official, he knows every health care worker, he knows every person, every circumstance, and, and in the same way as he has done with David, he has hemmed them in, he has closed them in, they are under his control, under, under his control and under his authority. We should also think, that there is not one COVID-19 molecule that is renegade from God. We don't know where those molecules are. We cannot see them. We cannot see where the disease is, but He knows where every single one is and where they all eventually will be. And they're acting according to His plan and according to His knowledge. This is no surprise to Him. This is nothing that has caught him off guard. This is entirely within his scope of observation and within his scope of sovereignty. We should also think, brothers and sisters, that God knows everything about our circumstance and is watching us. He knows us. He knows our need in this day, in this place, in this location. Listen to what A.W. Tozer writes in The Knowledge of the Holy. How utterly sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of the closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since He knew us utterly before we knew Him and He called us to Himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. Oh, brothers and sisters, He knows you and He is your Father and He is your Savior and He is your friend nonetheless. He is, he knows you. And that is our comfort. Three truths about, about God's omniscience. That's verses one through six. I also want you to see another characteristic of God. Verses seven through 12, three truths about God's omnipresence. And the first of these truths is given to us in verse seven and eight. No place can separate us from God's omnipresence. No place can separate us from God. We, we cannot run from God. We cannot escape from God. God's presence is not a matter, moving away from God's presence is not a matter of, of, of having more speed and just being able to run a little bit faster to get out of his line of sight or moving to a different location. Notice what David says, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or, in parallel thought, where can I flee from your presence? 
if I attempted to get away from, from God, if I attempted to get away from His knowledge of me, His awareness of me, where would I go? That word flee that he uses in verse 7 is a word that is often used in the Old Testament. And generally when it's used, it's used of, of running away from others in some form of fear. So Hagar flees from Sarah in fear. And Jacob flees from Esau in fear going to Laban. And then later he flees from Laban in fear and goes to Esau. David would flee from Saul. And David would flee in fear from Absalom and others Absalom would flee after he was after he killed Amnon and and Jonah in fear would would run and flee to Tarshish. The, the, the word means I want to get away, I want to run, I want to escape, I want to get away from. And yet even when David asks the question, even if he is tempted to run away from God, even if he is tempted to move away from God's omniscience and God's awareness of him, even the way he asks the question indicates that he has an implicit understanding that he can't get away. Where can I go to get away from your spirit? Nowhere. Where can I flee from your presence? And the implied answer is nowhere. I, I cannot get away from you. David then, in verse 8, offers two extremes of where he might go to travel, to, to get away from God, to escape God. Notice what he says in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. So heaven is the dwelling place of God. So, so of course it will be impossible to escape God if he goes to the highest parts of heaven. Every, every place in heaven is saturated with the presence of God. But the opposite is also true. So he says, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Even, even in Sheol, God is there. Now, the word Sheol in the Old Testament can refer to a couple of different things. And in general, it often simply refers to, to the place of the dead. It just refers to the fact that someone has died and, and their, their spirit has gone to the afterlife. But, but sometimes it also has the sense that not only have they gone to the afterlife, but they have gone to the place of, of punishment from God. They've gone, we would say, to hell. And and that's the way the New Testament typically translates and uses that word, that, that they have gone to hell. In fact, Proverbs 15.11 uses Sheol in that sense. Even, the psalmist says, were I to go to the place of punishment and the place of wrath, even if I were to go to hell, I could not escape you. You are still there. Is that true? Is it true that God is still even in hell? Notice what, um, what John the Apostle writes in John, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 14, speaking about those who are underneath the wrath of God in verse 10. He says of that person, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone, verse 10, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So there is a torment for those who are coming in hell where they are not only experiencing wrath, but they are experiencing wrath and seeing the Lamb of God who died for their sins and whom they rejected. They are seeing Him every moment that they are receiving the wrath that comes from Him. The one whom they lived their lives to escape, 
that one they will never even in hell be able to escape. Friends, there's no fellowship in hell. There's no friendship in hell. There's no unity in hell. There is no joy in hell. Hell is filled with wrath and it is filled with the presence of God pouring out His wrath against them. What's David's point in verse 8? His point is that whether we are in the heights of heaven or in the depths of Sheol in hell, God is there. In life or in death, God is there. In blessing or in wrath, God is always there. A family many years ago was about to make a, a move across country. And the last night before they left their old home to move to their new home, they gathered together in prayer And they all took some time praying, and the little boy prayed this prayer. He said, I guess this is goodbye, God, because tomorrow we're going to Cleveland. I think think that young man needs just a little bit of correction in his theology. Even in Cleveland, God is there. God is ever-present everywhere. Listen to what J.I. Packer writes in Knowing God. Man, David says, is always in God's presence. You can cut yourself off from your fellow men, but you can never get away from your Creator. You cannot escape the presence of God. No matter where we go, He will be there. No place can separate us from God's omnipresence. Verses 9 and 10, no distance can separate us from God's omnipresence. Getting away from God is not a matter of finding a new location that is further away from God. You, you cannot get far enough away to escape the infinite God. There, there is no distance that you can travel that will take you away from the presence of God. And David gives us examples of that starting in verse 9. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, in other words, if I, if I go to the furthest place of dawn, if I go to the furthest place to the east that I could possibly go, or... Conversely, verse 9, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, now he's not looking eastward, but now he is looking westward. He's looking to the Mediterranean Sea, and he's thinking if I could go to the furthest place to the west, as far as the Mediterranean Sea is, in both of those places, far to the east and far to the west, he says, verse 10, even there your hand will lead me. And I, and I think the psalmist would have us to think about not just how far a place in the east might be or how far a place in the west might be, but I, want, I think he wants us to think about the infinite distance that is between east and west. For if we travel east, there is never a time when we stop traveling east around the globe. And similarly, if we travel west, there is never a time that we don't stop traveling west around the globe. So, so if we take those two ideas, there is an infinite distance between east and west. And, 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 and David seems to be saying, even in that infinite distance that separates us from God, God is still there. There is no distance that can separate us from God. And, and here is the comfort, verse 10. No matter where I go, no matter how far away I seem to be from everyone and everything else, notice verse 10, even there your hand will lead me. Your hand guides me. Friends, that's the comfort. Wherever you are, the comfort is not just that God is there, 
But the, the comfort is that God is there and He is leading you. This is what God always has done. God, God led the nation of Israel through the wilderness in Exodus and He leads individuals. He leads David and friends. He will lead us also. We're, we're not alone. We have the one that we need to lead us. Remember Psalm 23? He restores my soul. He guides me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Proverbs 6, verse 22. When you walk about, they, the principles of God's wisdom, will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, Receive me to glory. That's Psalm 73, 23, and 24. So you guide me, you direct me, you're not only with me, but you're showing me which way to go. And all the way through life, you're doing that. And when that finishes, then you'll take me to glory. And even in glory, he is with us and he is leading us and directing us. Oh, friend, no distance will ever separate you from God's presence a third truth in verses 11 and 12 is that no time can separate us from God's omnipresence. No time can separate us from God's omnipresence. We, we cannot escape God's presence as if, as if He can just no longer see us. If we can just get out from underneath His eyesight, then, 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 then He will no longer see us and no longer be aware of where we are. When the girls were little, uh, one of the things they like to, like to do, as most children like to do, is they like to play hide and seek. And so often I would be, I would be the one that would ha- was hiding, and so they would they would try to find me. So I'd say, okay, count to ten, no peeking, and they would count to ten, and I'd go I'd go somewhere. Um, typically, we'd play this game in the house, and I'd go somewhere in the house, and I would I would sequester myself in that place, often a closet or something, and and I'd hear them going around the house looking and opening doors and pulling back the shower curtain in the bathroom. And at some point I would hear them do that and I'd, I'd hear them go past me without looking where I was. And then when they were past me and they weren't looking, then I would sneak back and go to the place where they had already looked and hide there because they would think, well, he can't be there, so let's not look there again. And, uh, and we, would, we would play that game and finally I'd expose myself, Dad, we give up, where are you? And then I would show them where I was. Dad, that's not fair. And, and we think, I think, sometimes with God that, that, that God is hiding from us and God is not being fair in the way He hides from us or that we can hide from Him. And that if we just go to a place where, where He's already looked, that we can sequester ourselves and He won't find us. Notice what? David says in verses 11 and 12, Surely the darkness will overwhelm me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the right night and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness, he says, verse 12, is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Even if David could find a darkness that would overwhelm him, that would crush him as it were, God would still see him. The infinite God 
is not dependent on any part of creation and he transcends night and day. He transcends time. He transcends light. And there is no time, there is no place, day or night, at which he is not present with us, is not aware of us, is not alongside of us. No darkness will hinder him. No light will help him. He is always observant in one equally as he is with the other. He sees us at all times and is with us at all times in all circumstances. No time of day and no time of night inhibits God from seeing us and being with us. Night is no barrier to God. Friend, do you... Do you view the omniscient, um, excuse me, omnipresence of God merely as an eternal and infinite watchdog who is looking over your life and evaluating you? Or do you see it as a gift of God that He is always alongside you to protect you and care for you and guide you? My friend, if you're in Jesus Christ, that is exactly what you have. God's comfort is your presence, uh, is, is, a, is His presence to bless you and to be a gift to you. Since God is everywhere, where should we go when we are hurting, when we are suffering, and we are troubled? Oh, friends, we should flee to Him who is always with us. God is not only all-knowing and ever-present, He is also all-powerful. Notice number three, two truths of God's omnipotence Two truths of God's omnipotence. First of all, God's power is over man's creation. God's power is over man's creation. Scripture repeatedly affirms the creative power of God and, and frequently man is at the center or the crown of that creation. And that's, that's why we read Psalm 8 this morning because that, that psalm particularly holds up that, well, while God has made this vast creation and the psalmist says, who am I in light of this creation? Yet in spite of that, God has lifted up man and made man at the, as the pinnacle of his creation. And here the psalmist reminds us exactly how God has created us and made us and put us together. Notice verse 13, You formed my inward parts and you wove me in my mother's womb. So there, there is a natural explanation from, for where babies come from, but, but David reminds us that every birth is from God. God is the one who makes the children. God is the one who knits them together, weaving all the different parts of the individual's life together. And that creation, he notes in verse 14, is something that is fearful. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is, that knowledge that God is the one who in His power and in His authority has made us, that should make us to fear Him, to delight in Him, to worship Him, to reverence Him. And we know that truth Notice he says in verse 14, my soul knows it very well. We know that in our inward parts. Paul would say our consciences know that. Our consciences um, are approving or convicting us uh, uh, in that that realm and and with that, that truth and of that truth. We know that to be true. We know because God has made us that we should worship him. And then notice verse 15 
how the psalmist details how God has made mankind. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. That is, that is the skeletal structure of my body was put together by you and, and I was made in secret. That is, that is where no one else could see and no one else could act. That is exactly when you were acting and when you were working and you skillfully wrought me in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. You, you wove everything about my life together on, on my skeletal structure. You skillfully wove and worked and wrought our parts together. All the muscles and the, the sinew and the tissues, you put that on the skeletal structure. It was you that was doing that in a place where no one else can act and no one else can accomplish it. He does it, he says, in secret. And that speaks to both his omnipresence, he does it in a secret place, and it speaks to his omnipotence, his power to do what no one else can do. His power is over every aspect of the creation of man. And brothers and sisters, that's just a reminder to us as well that God is intimately acquainted with us and He is intimately acquainted with us particularly. God does not make people in general. God makes people specifically, particularly. He has made each individual exactly as He wants them and He makes each individual to know Him and to be known by Him. That's why He acts. That's why He creates. That's why His power is granted uh, to us in the act of creation. He, as the pinnacle of His creation, makes us particularly individual, individually. Friend, you're not alone. When God brings difficulties and trials and burdens and and COVID-19 and a vast array of other things into our lives, we're not alone. He's not abandoned us. He made us. He knows us. He's with us. God's power is over man's creation. And I also want you to notice this about God's power. Verses 16 to 18, God's power is over man's duration. God not only makes mankind, but He also ordains the length of every man's life. God, notice what He says, has written in His book all the days that were ordained for me. God has determined ahead of time before before he was even born, notice the end of verse 16, when as yet there were not one of them. In other words, before he even had a single day on this earth, God had already determined not only the beginning point, but he'd also determined the ending point. God has determined and planned every moment of the psalmist's life. And he plans and ordains every day of every man's life. And friends, this is also a comforting truth Because notice verse 17, the psalmist says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. In other words, God has infinite numbers of thoughts toward that individual. God creates him, designs the length of his life, plans the length of his life, and then is with him, thinking of him, caring for him, applying his concern his wisdom to the one whom he has created all the length of his days. In fact, the psalmist says, verse 17, if I, were to, if I were to take your thoughts 
if I could if I could consider and see all of your thoughts to me about me, how vast is the sum of them? It's it's an uncountable number. It would it would be a number that would outnumber the number of grains of sand on the earth. If I could number all those grains of sand, your thoughts, your thinking of me, your care of me, your attention to me are greater than that. You you have an infinite number of thoughts. It's David's way of reminding us that we are cared by God. Notice what he says at the end of verse 18. When I awake, I am still with you. When I awake, you are with me and I am with you. There is never a time when, when I am outside your control, your awareness, your wisdom. In my office, I have a pair of plaques that hang really pretty much only where I can see them. It's a pair of plaques that a friend made for me when I graduated from seminary 30 years ago. And the plaques simply say, I'm his and he is mine. And those plaques are sit on the side of a bookcase where I can see them. And I look at them with frequency and they remind me of the reality of God's ever-present care of me, His watching over me. I belong to Him and He belongs to me. And it reminds me not only of, of His faithfulness to me, but it reminds me of His faithfulness to all His people so that, so that the, the man, the mentor who made these for me um, served Christ for 99 years and went into glory in his 99th year. And when I see these plaques, I remember God's faithfulness to sustain a man for 99 years. I, I see God's faithfulness to sustain all people everywhere. I pulled these off the shelf today and looked at them, and I'd forgotten what my friend had put on the back of one of them. He had put the words to the hymn, I am his and he is mine on the back of these two plaques. Listen to what that hymn says in part. His forever, only His. Who the Lord and me shall part? Oh, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. Firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am His, and He is mine. If Christ is going to exist, if God is going to exist, if I am going to exist, then I am His, and He is mine. His hand will watch over me everywhere I am and everywhere I will be. Oh, friends, I know that some of you are particularly afraid. You do not need to fear we can put our heads on our pillows at night and know that one of two things will happen. We will wake up in the morning and we will still be with Him and He will still be with us. Or we can wake up in the morning in glory, having died. And we know in an even greater way that we are still His and He are, is still ours. We are safe with Him. Trust Him and trust His power and authority. What will we do with these truths? 
Let me just quickly note three responses to God's omni-attributes. And these are hinted to uh, for us or hinted at for us in verses 17 through 24. The first is to meditate on God's character. Notice verse 17, David notes that God is giving attention to him. God is thinking of him. So he says, how precious are your thoughts to me. And yet as we read this psalm, it is also obvious that David is giving attention to God. David is meditating on God. This entire psalm is a long meditation of David on the nature and the character of God. And and as he has contemplated God, notice what he says in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me. As I have meditated on God, as I have considered who you are, and as I have considered how you think of me and how you care for me, You and your thoughts of me have become precious to me. They've become a joy to me. What seemingly was a point of distress in verses 6 and 7 has now become a delight and preciousness to David. David has thought about God, and now David is thinking about God. Friends, it seems to me that one of our weaknesses is that we tend to look far too closely at the hill-like circumstances of our lives and we forget to look at the mountain of God that is behind those hills. We look so closely and we get so close to those hills that we cannot see the mountains that tower behind them. And friends, we need to pull back. We need to walk away from the circumstances. We need to give less attention to the circumstances and more attention to the God who is behind the circumstances. Well, friend, are you, are you these days spending more time meditating on COVID-19 or more time meditating on God and filling your mind with His Word? Are you spending more time watching your favorite news channel or are you spending more time reading the Scriptures and filling your mind with His truth? Are you, are you investing in memorizing the Scriptures? Are you investing in reading truths about the Scriptures? Are you investing in listening to sermons? Are you investing, are you investing in the truth of God? Or is your heart being pulled away from God by a few little hills that pale in comparison to the mountainous terrain of who God is? Oh, friends, meditate on God's character. Secondly, trust that God will be just. Verse 19 is an imprecatory response from David against those who are against God. And he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. He wants the evil to face God's judgment. This is not the time or the place to think about how we handle imprecatory psalms, but I want you to just notice that David is simply saying in these verses, God, there are people who are against you, who refuse you, who reject you, who fail to submit to your omni-attributes. I want you to know, God, I am not one of those. I do not follow after them. I do not obey them. I do not submit myself to them. I do not walk in their pathway. In fact, Lord, I want justice to be done to them. I want your justice and your righteousness to be poured out against those who are against you. He is not being vindictive for his own purposes. He simply is saying, God, I want your justice and your righteousness to be revealed at the right time. Would you do that, God? And friends, this is just a reminder that whether it's with coronavirus or anything else, we don't need to be anxious that things will not be unfair, that things will, that things will be unfair. We can trust God. He will be fair. He will 
pour out his justice at the right time. We simply need to ask, will you be just and then trust him to be just? And then third response, verses 23 and 24, seek God's righteous self-examination. In verses 1 to 6, David notes that God knows everything that there is to know about him. And then in verses 23 and 24, he says, search me and know my heart. This is, this is almost the very same thing that he says in verse 1. You have searched me and have known me. You have searched. You have sought me out. You have examined. You have known me. And now he says, search me and know me. Is he saying, God, inform yourself about me? No. He's not saying inform yourself about me. He says, would you reveal who I am to me? Would you make me known to myself? Would you make me to see myself the way you know me? And then would you see if there is any anxious thought in me? And if there is an anxious thought or anything else that leads me away from you, Would you see if there be any hurtful way and lead me in the everlasting way? Would you lead me to change? The questions in this verse reflect the reality, as J.I. Packer has said, that we can never distrust ourselves too much. We We can never assume that we are as good as we think we might be or want to be. We, we, we need to approach our lives and say, there probably is something that needs change and transformation. Then we need to say, God, will you change me? Says one pastor, our prayer should be, Lord, I gladly open all the closets of my life, every room and every corner. Show me what needs attention. Reveal to me what brings pain to you in my life. Can we be wise enough, friends, and brave enough to ask Him to do that in our lives? Can we ask Him, will you reveal God by heart to me? Will you show me what I'm like on the inside? And will you reveal what I am wanting so badly that I am willing to sin with anxiousness and with ungodly fear and with greed and with hurtfulness and grumbling and complaining? Can we ask him those questions? And when he reveals that to us, friends, it's only then that we're able to do what the psalmist says in verse 24, to follow him in the everlasting way, the way of righteous living. If this coronavirus became an opportunity for us to examine our hearts and begin changing ourselves from moving in ungodly habits to godly habits, wouldn't that be a productive way to redeem coronavirus? Well, friends, God is, God is with us. God knows us. God's powerful for us. And He is designing this to change and transform us. Wouldn't that be a sweet redemption of COVID-19? One pastor has outlined this psalm as a series of questions that remind us of God's nature. How well does God know me? How close is God to me? How carefully has God made me? And how much does God protect me and help me? Oh, my friends, God is everything we need in this day. He is all. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. And He is all-powerful. 
And these truths about His omnipowers are given to us so that we have direction on which way to go so that we would live in the everlasting way and so that we would be comforted by Him knowing of His particular care of us individually. Oh, friends, He is an infinite God, but He is also an intimate God caring for His people. Our Father, we thank You this morning for these truths that remind us of Your nature, remind us of Your power, remind us of Your authority. Would You transform us by these truths, make us hopeful in these truths, give us comfort from these truths, liberate us from anxiousness by these truths, make us more servant-hearted by these truths. And in all these things, Father, would You lead us in the everlasting way. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.